agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University, a prolific author and a blogger at Bet On It. He's written a whole number, a whole bunch of books, and we've talked about many of them on this show. And I am very happy to have him back once again to talk about his latest collection, Don't Be a Feminist, Essays on Genuine Justice. Brian Kaplan, welcome back. Fantastic to be here, Michael. So I, I thought... Well, I, we'd start with, well, a definition. It's a good social scientist kind of place to start, I think. And the definition of the term feminist, because I think if we're going by a basic understanding of the term, men and women should be treated equally, nobody or well, a lot of people wouldn't make a case against that. I don't think you would. And I was going to start by saying, well, how do you define feminism? But that doesn't actually seem quite right to me because I think you're not so much against feminism in that definition, but you have a different understanding of how feminists define feminism, right? Right. Or I would just say how people in our society, feminists and non-feminists use the word. I do. Normally I'm someone that does not like to argue about definitions, but sometimes there's a definition that, that becomes common that is so at odds with actual usage that it becomes a major issue. And feminism is one such word. Yes, you can go to dictionaries and we'll say it's the view that men and women should be treated equally. But here's the problem. What we see is that still a majority of people say they are not feminists, and yet almost everyone agrees with this stated definition of feminism, which I say means that that can't be the real definition. There's got to be something else. Saying that feminists believe that men and women should be treated equally is like saying feminists believe the sky is blue can't be the definition of feminism. It's just a standard view of almost everyone, whether they're a feminist or not, uh, which is why I propose the following alternative definition. Say, I, I say yeah, feminism is the view that our society generally treats men more fairly than women. That's it. Right? Many people say, oh, this is a horrible straw man. It's totally pig-headed for me to go and foist this definition on others. I say, no, this is actually the way that feminists and non-feminists use the word Feminists almost invariably do believe that our society treats men more fairly than women. And if you're not a feminist, at minimum, you say, well, it's complicated or you disagree. So I say that's a better definition. And, I, and one that I do not think really biases the issue. I think it's one where it just gets, the, gets a more neutral definition on the table so we can have a better discussion. All right. So under that definition, then, I, I would imagine you would agree that there are, in fact, some societies in which one should be a feminist. I'm thinking, you know, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, under the Taliban, that sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah ab ab absolutely. Okay. And, and I say that, say that very thing in the essay. So there's some societies where the feminist view would be correct. Although I hasten to add, this doesn't mean that you should accept the whole package of what modern Western feminism is. Uh, but still, yes, you know, there's some societies where, 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 where the men are treated more fairly than women. But uh, I question whether... This is true in any of the notable Western countries that we see today. Okay, at, at least in 2023, I, I would imagine. So, right, and, and you know, and then I do want to backdate and say, well, sort of, when did this change? And it's honestly a complicated question. It's one where 
people often want to settle the issue just by saying, let's go and look at how an American woman lived in 1900. Look at how terrible it was. They say, yeah, well, let's go over and look at the factory where her husband was working, see how, what, what his life was like. Don't mistake rising income with a change in gender equality. Okay. Yeah, I, I want to get to that because one of the, I think, main arguments that you would hear is that women earn less than men for similar or for similar type jobs. I think the Census Bureau data that I have is women make 83 cents per every $1 made by men. And now, though, I should point out that, right, that when you control for most of the factors that you can control for, like education, experience, hours, work, that gap gets very, very small, something like 99 cents for every $1. But, but still, that adds up over the course of tens of thousands of dollars and many decades. And so even if it's a smaller difference, doesn't that difference matter? Doesn't that tell us something about inequality in wages or not so much, do you think? I would say that for you, just to talk about the facts first, the big recent piece in the Journal of Economic Literature said 95 cents after controlling for a lot of stuff. So uh, it's actually worse than you're suggesting. Okay. <laughs> right. uh, but what I would add is, you know, these are regressions. What you do in a regression is you try to predict a variable given a number of other variables that you happen to possess. It doesn't show that those are all the variables that exist in the universe. This is all a matter of convenience and what's available. So if you see a 1% or a 5% lingering gap for between men and women for what appears to be equal work, you could say, ah, well, there's still a notable harm uh, towards women. Or you could say, maybe we don't have all the right control variables. I think it's much more of that story. And, you know, I think that actually, if you get a long enough list of control variables, some of which are just hard to get, but so I'd say the evidence is still suggestive, then I think it's quite possible that it goes the other way. I think it definitely goes the other way in STEM, in academia, where, you know, or at least the STEM part of academia, where there's so much pressure to go and get a woman mathematician that I think actually you, the women mathematicians probably earn more than they would if they were men with exactly the same track record. Definitely, when I've talked to people in CS, they've said this. So I think the main issue is while 1% gain over a lifetime, you can still say that's a lot of money. Don't think that just because the best regressions that we have find a 1% residual that that's 1% causal. It's probably that we just don't have all the variables we need. Okay. Well, let's let's grant that just for the sake of argument and say they're really, if we had the right variables in the model, there would be essentially no difference. There are still some other arguments. For instance, uh, a lot of- Oh, actually, can we just back up on one thing? Oh, yeah, please do. Something something relevant is if someone has spent a career saying 82 cents on the dollar and it's really 95, they could either change the subject and say, well, that's still terrible. Or they could do the decent thing, which is say, sorry, I exaggerated. Okay. And, 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 yeah. and that lack of a sorry, I exaggerated is one of the main intellectual flaws of feminism. Just the unwillingness to treat people that they're talking to with a normal level of humility and, and common decency and just to uh, try to avoid overstating. And when you are caught overstating to say, ah, my mistake, rather than just changing the subject to a new complaint. Yeah, I, I think that's a, I think that's a fair point. In fact, for a long time, I think the the number I heard was seventy three cents on the dollar, and and I, I would say that that's not a flaw, not just in feminism, but in activist circles on uh, all sorts of issues. But I I I entirely agree with you on that point. I mean, I mean, I, and I, you know, I would say one of the things that does distinguish feminist activists from even other activists is 
the level of thinly veiled intimidation that they're using when they argue. Mm, okay. So, of course, any activist looks you know, may seem like they're ready to bite your head off if you disagree, but I think this is an especially egregious case. Mm, all right. So what about the argument that you often hear that, well, you know, women are around half of the, the population, a tiny bit more, I guess, but they're really underrepresented at the top, pretty much well, of a lot of professions, politics, business. I mean, you take a look at, for instance, lists of the wealthiest Americans, mostly male. We've never had a female president. Uh, 71% of the House, 75% of the Senate are male. And then a lot of folks look at those numbers and say, wait a second, there's clearly a problem here and suggests that women are being systemically underrepresented at the very top levels in society. And what's your response to that? One thing on the fact, I think that you're right about income for men. For wealth, I think women actually generally dominate because so often they inherit. Ah, okay. And they live. <laughs> I'd have to double check, but I am pretty sure, sure that yeah. women actually, uh, you know, a majority of the wealthiest people are actually women. You know, normally because they inherited the money of a wealthy husband who's now dead. Um, but in terms of what's going on, well, um, what I would say is step one is maybe they're right. Maybe it's true that this shows that women are being mistreated and despite having done just as amazing things as men, that they are not receiving comparable rewards. Another possibility, though, is that they don't do as many amazing things as men and that at the top level, you're getting rewards for doing things that are absolutely superlative and women do fewer of those things. Uh, the way that I would attack this problem is just to say, well, we think that there's a general unfairness uh, that uh, is being committed against women. Then we should see not only that women are doing worse at the top, but they're doing worse at the bottom. That turns out to be totally false. In fact, men totally dominate at the bottom and by almost any measure, men are much more likely to be in prison, to be homeless, suicide, so on. Right now, when you get that picture, you, you know, like you really have to start rethinking, saying, well, it doesn't make sense just to say that, that our society is really good to men, really bad to women, because men are overrepresented at the top and the bottom. Like one story could be, hmm, well, somehow we have a weird thing where we just want and want men to do either well or poorly. It sounds pretty right. hard to understand. Yeah. Who's advocating that? And then another one is male behavior differs more widely than women's behavior. Women are more conformist. They're more likely to just stay in the center of the distribution of behavior, which impedes massive success, but also hinders horrible failure. Men, on the other hand, are risk takers. They're, they're more nonconformist, which tends to give you both the really uh, up to the upside of being a nonconformist risk taker, which is you become a billionaire. And it also gives you the downside of being a nonconformist risk taker, which is you end up on the streets. And, and that would, I imagine, get into the argument of, well, what drives the nonconformist risk-taking risk nature, right? Whether that's to the extent that that's biological, genetic, or societally determined sort of thing. And that would be uh, probably going a little far afield, but I just wanted to point out that that would be, that could potentially be a factor, yeah. right? Right. I mean, and also just to say, even if it was totally socially determined, still to say that that's a problem, it's like, well... Like there's lots of things that are socially determined, right? You know, so if you're born in a religion, then you probably stay in that religion. Is this something where we should be doing something about it and take people away from their parents to give them a broad education in all the religious options or say, oh, well, it's, you know, that's the base of on upbringing and we're not going to do anything about it really. Or we're just going to say, yeah, let's, you know, that's how, that's, that's how things go and say, look, if you don't like it, then you're, you know, like once you're an adult, take charge of your own life and consider other other possible religions that you might have. 
rather than blaming society, oh, you should have taken me from my parents and shown me 20 other religions I could have chosen from. Now, whatever am I, whatever am I to do? Yeah, right. Well, to, to what extent do you think that some of the underrepresentation at, at the top might be uh, something of a lag effect in that if we look at people, a lot of the people at the top of their fields are wealthiest, they tend to be older. And of course, that was in a society that perhaps might have provided fewer opportunities to women and people coming up in the, the 70s or maybe even a little bit before. Do you think that might account for any non-trivial uh, amount of what we're seeing? Yeah, it's probably some modest fraction of it. I mean, it's important to remember that there were two big differences in the past. One is there's a difference in the share of women that are trying to succeed really and get to the top. There's also a difference in the amount of both social and political pressure to to get gender equality regardless of performance. So I think there's two things going on. So if you were to go and say, well, the top young women in mathematics are now, uh, or rather, you know, the top the top professors in mathematics. There's a larger female share. One possibility is that women are performing at a higher level. Another possibility is that mathematicians are under enormous pressure to go and promote women and treat them like they are performing better than they really are. I think both things are going on, honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing we haven't talked about really to this point is is sexism, and that can that can show itself in a number of ways, not necessarily just men objectifying women, but the fact that women tend to do the lion's share of child care, elder care. And of course, then there are just blatant acts of sexual aggression, rape, violence, other things like that. I mean, it it seems to me that this is at least one area in which almost unequivocally women have it worse than men. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Right. Um, Just to make a meta point, uh, whatever, well, even people that say my definition of feminism is terrible, after we get off the definition, then normally the conversation is they make a long list of ways that our society treats men more fairly than women. Uh-huh. Right? Okay. And I say, well, it's, it's kind of a vindication of my definition. At minimum, I could be wrong on all the facts, but my definition seems to fully explain the way that you think about these issues. So I just want, want to get that on the table. In terms of sexism against women, what I would say is that this really is a totally two-way street and that... There are extremely sexist views about men as well that we just really talk about, not because they're not serious or harmful, but because we just don't care about male suffering very much. So just let's just go through a few of the ones that you're mentioning, Michael. So we've got, yes, um, women being treated like sex objects. Yes, men do that to women a lot more than women do that to men. However, there is a, there is a simple way of flipping this around. How about men being treated as success objects? Men being judged primarily based upon their career performance, their income. This is something where, again, the evidence is overwhelming that this is standard. Women do this to men. Uh, you know, there's the classic line of women saying, oh there's, no, oh, there's no men around in a restaurant full of waiters. It's like, well, they don't consider them real men. Like To them, men are high-status men, successful men, and they wouldn't even deign to go and consider dating one of these waiters. Right now... There's, you know, you know, you could go and say, basically, I agree with all the complaints about men you know, treating women as sex objects, and this is just as terrible, women treating men as success as sex, sex objects, or you could have a more forgiving view of both, which is how I treat it and say, well, look, this is the, the way the human sexual attraction is based. It's very biological. Uh, like you, like you, to be you know, bitterly against this is really just to be bitterly against human nature. It's one thing to say, can we be a bit more polite about this? So the, a little, have, you know, be a little bit more compassionate. 
which I think is reasonable. Uh, but to go and act like both, you know, like like women are the gender that treats other people fairly, and men are the gender or that that doesn't, is I think pretty crazy. Uh, so you know that's you know the you know, objective objectification, which really is a totally two way street. Let's see, in terms of you know, crime in general, men are much more likely to be victims of violent crime than women. Uh, for sexual violence, I'll, I'll be obviously, uh, outside of prisons, women are more likely to be subject to sexual violence. Although once you add in prison rape, then actually the numbers are no longer clear even there. It may be that when you factor in prison rape and prison sexual abuse, then there is actually, you know, could, like it is not crazy to think that men are actually subject to more sexual violence than women. All things considered, that one is a bit harder because prison rape some of you know, we do have some measures of prison rape. You know, so it's like, like oh, there have been some good surveys of what's going on in prisons, trying to keep it anonymous, indicating that it's at a really high level. So even that's less clear. But again, if you know, like uh, to, to focus specifically on sexual violence, again, is to at best be focusing on really the one area where women are more likely to be victimized than men. Whereas overall, it's totally the other way. Men are much more likely to be murdered, much more likely to be subject to violence overall. I don't remember the other ones you're mentioning, but I think in all of these, it's one where if you just start with, with what you've heard, then the story of women being much more victimized is true. On the other hand, if you do the good anti-confirmation bias thing of saying, well, what would counterexamples be? What are some reasons to disbelieve this? It's just not hard to come up with major counterexamples, not just nitpicking. Right. I, I guess the fundamental problem I have is is a measurement problem in the sense is how do we how do we measure, say, the uh, the difficulty or the the life problems that are engendered by getting cat calls, and which is which is a negative outcome as opposed to say being in a more danger? These are things that we don't have a good way to compare. I guess is what I'm saying. And so when someone says to me, "Well, women have it easier, or men have it harder overall," it it just seems to me that that's almost impossible to determine on any large scale overall basis. Right. So if that were the general societal position, then I wouldn't have bothered writing the essay. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so if the final decision is it's just too hard to say, no one can say this anymore, and then I say, okay, so no one can say it anymore, does this mean they will stop saying it then? Right, right. Yeah. Then I think I would be happy to say, all right, great, truce. All right, so never again do we have to hear about this. Um, uh, uh, however, since the conversation is, is ongoing, I, do, I, I at least want to entertain it. In the end, like I'm not agnostic, and I think that there are ways ways that we can at least get a reasonable view of it. Not absolute certainty, of course, which is a crazy thing to be looking for with any social issue, but a heavy preponderance of the evidence. I mean, just one way that I like to think about the issue of catcalling and that kind of thing is this. I've done some surveys just saying, suppose that you could go and set your own attractiveness on a zero to 10 scale. And after doing that, you would get all the good things of having your attractiveness level and all the bad things. Where would you put your attractiveness level? Right. You go for and 10. I've also I mean, done yeah. survey separately <laughs> for both men and women. Like, there's almost no women who want to be under a seven. Yeah. That's, yeah. Of course. Right. So, yes, you can say, yes, it's unfortunate that they're catcalling. It's, you know, they're being rude. That's bad. But to say that your life is bad or oh, on balance because of this, that's a pretty silly thing to say and say, look, all right, there's, like, this is bad. There's no justification for the way people are treating you. But remember, you also get some enormous benefits of your, of your looks. And so overall, you should feel good about it. Yeah. It, it just seems to me, I guess, that you can acknowledge that there are issues that are 
particular problems for women in certain areas and particular problems for men without having to go to this larger concept of one gender has it worse or better, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Like I said, like if we get you, like my view is it's overall, it's probably, it's quite close. Well, you know, and again, that's not because everyone gets treated well. It's because every, like, like almost everyone gets treated subpar, every, almost everyone gets subpar treatment, men and women. But if, we could just have this be generally understood and become common knowledge that both men and women endure a lot of unfairness and to go and say that the unfairness that women endure is, is, is sexism and requires a philosophy to go and fight it. Whereas the men, this the unfairness that men endure, that's just tough luck and that's life and they should shut up about it. That's the kind of thing that I think we really should get rid of. And, you know, honestly, I think the most constructive thing is for you know, everyone to publicly shut up while talking <laughs> about their troubles to people that care about them. Right. So, you know, so it is terrible to, to be un, to be unhappy and to have no one to talk about your problem to, but to politicize it and make it something where you go and write articles about it. I think that just you know, that makes things worse for society overall. And it spreads what I call antipathy, um, antipathy and self-pity. And our ideal world is one where everyone has a good list of family and friends that they can commiserate with. And they just stop going and saying that that things are terrible for for my group if your group is not doing especially badly. Again, now again, if it really is true, like you know, you know, if you're Ukrainian, you're saying things are really bad for Ukraine right now. Yeah, that's where sure. it's like, well, there's that great in Russia either. All right, true, but there's a reason why people are singling out Ukraine to talk about, and that's because things are especially bad there for them right here, right there, right now. But if it is not the case that objectively your group is doing especially badly, then to politicize it and, and go and try to harangue people about it is spreading antipathy and self-pity and it should be stopped. I think that's true across the board. Absolutely. Now, yeah. th- th- there are some folks. You, you seem like happy fellow, Michael. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> cheerful can do. I like it. So, all right. So I can get all the cheerful can do people on my side. Yeah. And, yeah, all five of them. And then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, but th- th- to turn it in a different direction, there are some people who would say, yeah, both in, in this country and certainly in some other cultures, that just because even if men and women are treated unequally, that doesn't mean that that's necessarily in some way wrong or unfair. There's arguments that saying that, for instance, women do more child care and elder care because they are more naturally suited to that role or our, our religious belief system suggests that this is the way things should be done. And, and therefore that what society or what certain segments of society are asking is for us to impose sort of a, an artificial equality, which might actually be more damaging in the long run to both men and women. Now, I'm not necessarily saying I advocate that argument, but there are an awful lot of people who would, who would find something true in that argument. And, and I wonder what you think about Quiet, it. Quietly. Yeah, well, quietly. sometimes quietly. Yeah, true. absolutely. <laughs> Right. I mean, I think that makes perfect sense that there are, that human beings are different and different people have different abilities and preferences. So, yeah, like when you see that members of one group do a lot of one thing and members of another group do a lot of another thing, at least my starting position is, well, maybe they're, maybe the people, people are doing the thing they're better at, or maybe they're doing the thing they like more. This is our standard view of hobbies. Right. Yeah. For hobbies, like if you see that men are watching more sports and women are watching more cooking shows, very rarely does someone say, ah, well, this reflects how men are allowed to enjoy sports, whereas women are pressured into watching cooking shows so they can cook better. 
That would not, you know, that could be true. Well, yeah. That did, it's not where, you, not where you would start. It's where you start with, well, maybe men like sports and women like cooking. Well, so well, there, there are plenty of people who would start there, though, and would say that the, the women who think they like cooking and the men who think like sports are, are you know, in some sort of false consciousness sort of state right. where they, you know, but yeah. that's all. Again, I would say that sort of the least likely thing to have false consciousness about is what you personally enjoy. Right, you know, more likely to have false consciousness about what is my position in the society fair, something that's sort of outside of your control anyway. So you might just tell yourself something in order to cope with the situation. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this is also one where it's worth pointing out that uh, if we if we were thinking about unfairness, it makes sense to go and add up paid work plus unpaid work. And in that case, uh, at least for the United States, we've had a very good data on this going back a long time. And it really looks like on average Total paid plus unpaid work is very similar for men and women. Uh, we see that there is a lot of, there's a lot of variation. One particular, it seems that working mom or full moms who work full time, they probably are working more total hours than dads who work full time. But on the other hand, uh, you know, stay at home moms are working a, a few, a smaller number of hours than dads who are employed full time. So really what we have is more variation with women rather than a difference in the average. I want to get to more than just feminism, because even though that's the title of the book, the book is about a lot more than just that. You have a collection of a whole bunch of essays, right? The diversity and inclusion comes up in a number of places. And, and of course, there, there aren't too many people who say diversity, inclusion. No, I'm, I'm not for those. That's a bad thing. Uh, but, but there are a lot of people, I think, or at least some people generally on the right, who feel that societal efforts in this country to address these kind of long-standing historical inequalities based on these things have gone too far. But of course, then you get the response of, well, yeah, that's what that's what a bunch of privileged white males would say. Naturally, the power structure is fine with saying, oh, women are wonderful, but when it comes to actually, or, or, or people of color are wonderful, but when it comes to actually giving them a, a fair piece of the pie, well, that's, no, you can't threaten my privilege. So what do you think about that sort of reaction to the DEI movement, I guess you might call it? Right. I say it's always helpful just to calm down and say, let's just start with some specific prominent claims, see how they check out, and then we will try to generalize from there. So we're already talking about the gender pay gap. This is one where it's still very widely believed in our society that women are really just arbitrarily paid less than men for the same work. When we actually go to the numbers, we see that this is at best grossly exaggerated. There might be some very small pay gap between men and women. Although even there, much more likely that it's just explained by one or more of the many factors that weren't in the regression. Things like, you know, usually in these regressions, we don't have college major, for example. And we know that men are a lot more likely to do STEM degrees, which for obvious reasons pay more than degrees in political science or history or something like that. So once we've gone through a major example like that, we've seen, all right, well, we, we, there's an argument about the, the gender pay gap. There's one side saying that things have gone too far and the other side saying, oh, that's just you with your, with your white male privilege. And then we look and say, well, actually, it looks like the, it's the first group that's right. First group that's right and say, at best, the problem has been solved and more likely, actually, we have overshot and now there's a lot of pressure to hire less qualified women for positions where there's more qualified men. And the fact that the people that are saying this are generally white and male is really beside the point if they got the facts on their side. 
In fact, you could say this is a further sign of the iniquity of the other side that they are changing the subject from the facts to the demographics of the speakers shows how what you know, shows that they are bigoted and unfair people. So that's uh, where I am coming down. Again, in, in all of this, I don't want to prejudge it. I just want to hear the sides and then say, all right, well, let's see where, where the evidence is. But I'm very happy to post-judge it. <laughs> and I'm happy okay. to have a post-judge a post-judgment that is harsh towards one of the sides. So yeah, so in the end, I do think that the diversity inclusion movement, it's not just that it's wrong, but that it's Orwellian. They are the the kinds of people that they are calling accusing other people of being overall. Well, you know, so, I, I, you know, it, you know for someone who says I value inclusion, you 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 privilege white male. Right? That is the kind of language that a person that is that wants to exclude others uses. Uh, this is really, really, really you know, worse and more and more hostile language than I can remember almost anyone using in public in my life. And now it has become something that uh, has been, like, is actually normalized and you'll see it in op-eds and so on. It is like you know, open bigotry. Well, you know, I think the case is maybe a little easier to make when it comes to gender issues than when it comes to, say, comparing, for instance, we're looking at issues of, of race or issues of sexual identity. Uh, that, I mean, you look at, you know, the percentage of black men who are in prison compared to, you know, non uh, to white men, that sort of thing. And so uh, do you think that maybe there are some distinctions that are worth considering there that maybe aren't as stark when we're just comparing genders? Well, what I would say is each case, we should just go to the facts and not prejudge it. Uh, in the case of the racial gap in incarceration, I mean, just to start, the gender gap in incarceration is very, is very comparable to the racial gap. In fact, it's a, it's a bit worse. So it can't simply be that the size of a, a huge gap shows that something is wrong. Obviously, the main reason why there's so many men in jail for murder than women is because men commit a lot more murders. Uh, even there, we should have an open mind. Well, maybe we're a bit easier on women when they do murder. And I think there is some evidence for that. But still, the main reason why there's so many men in jail for murder is men are doing more murder. Similarly, like, it is very clear the main reason why there's so many more black blacks in jail for murder than whites is because blacks commit a lot more murders per person. Right now, there's sort of two approaches here. One of them is, all right, well, what if we go and do really solid empirical work? Can we find some small residual that's not explained by that? And that's one approach that you can do. Of course, when you do it that way, it really does deflate a lot of the self-righteousness because you give up the claim that it's just randomly, there are six black males in prison for every white male in prison. Uh, and you switch, or, you know, excuse, me, excuse me, per capita, that could be per mm -hmm, capita. Right. Um, and, you, and then you switch the subject over to minor residuals. And yeah, like once you're doing residuals, it's hard to be as self-righteous as when it was the entire thing is due to bigotry. All right, so that's uh, you know that's 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 one approach that you can take, um, and let's see. So that's one that you can do, and but then you know, then another one is to say, well, let's just you know, oh yeah, let, 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 we can also say, well, let's not focus so much on individual performance and think about the structural factors. What is it that causes black men to commit so many more murders? And again, that is an approach that many people do want to take. Uh, it's one that I. I'll, I'll strongly philosophically object to, and I just say, look, like you would not make this argument for any group that you didn't like, right? If you were to go and say, hey, well, maybe we should let these Nazi war criminals off for what they did because it was war and they were raised to be racist, so what's the big deal? Or like, like you know, show some compassion. This is one where I don't think there'd be a lot of sympathy for that. Why? It's like, well, you know, like they should have known better. They should have known better. 
Right. So, for example, if you want to go and let off a Nazi concentration camp guard for killing Jews, a good argument is he would have been shot if he had disobeyed orders. That's a good argument. It's one where it's like, all right, uh, I, I, was not, I was not in that position personally. I can understand. Yeah, probably most people in that position would do it. It's you know, like you might say, like, I understand why he didn't go and, and, uh, and die for strangers when he was under that extreme duress. That's, you know, that's a reasonable argument for at least reducing the punishment. On the other hand, if the Nazi war criminals' excuse was, the other soldiers would have laughed at me and called me a Jew lover, and I couldn't bear that, so I murdered people. It's like, yeah, that's not good enough. You're still still getting a harsh sentence, right? That kind of social pressure and feeling of, oh, I I can't bear to go and do something different from what other people around me are doing, that is a lame and pathetic excuse, and we should not accept it, right? Now... When you hear the, uh, this kind of structural excuse for why, for example, black males have a much higher murder rate than white males, it's much more like the second kind of excuse than the first one. It's not like, I'll be murdered unless I go and join a gang. It's more like, they'll laugh at me, they'll say I'm acting white, they'll call me a nerd, I like, like you know, that kind of thing. It's like, look, that's just not a good enough reason to go and kill people, and it's not a good excuse. It's a really pathetic excuse, actually. Like it is totally reasonable to expect an adult if someone says, I will laugh at you and think you're a wimp unless you go into do a violent crime to say, Well, then laugh at me and call me a wimp. I'm not doing it. it well, I, I think that's this is where sort of your your libertarianism is coming out, right? The the, the sense that people well, yeah, are I saying, I mean, more and more, I think of it more as common sense morality than as libertarianism. This is one where I think that. Again, this is not just the you know, a libertarian view about it. It's a view that almost everyone has for anyone that they know personally. If your kid were to say, well, the reason that I'm going and uh, you know, joining a gang is because all my friends are doing it. Like, you know, no parent, you know, it doesn't matter what your political views are. No parent hears that and says, okay, that's a very valid structural reason why you're doing that. I understand and accept it. Instead, it's like, well, tough luck, kid. No. I will, you, know, you, must, you must say no if you're not going to, like, if it's either be popular or or uh, be a criminal, then, or you know, rather be unpopular, be a criminal, then you have to be unpopular. No way. Sure. I, I see what you're saying. So if that's, if that's the primary or the only reason, that seems pretty weak. But if there are a constellation of reasons, as there often are, that determine human behavior, then, then there might be a better case to be made. Yeah. Well, so again, there's the classic legal defense of duress, where there's like someone points a gun to your head and says, kill this person or I kill you. Right, that's a pretty compelling defense. Uh, I've read a lot of books on poverty. I don't think that you know, while there are a lot of excuses, I think they're all fairly lame and pathetic. Again, ones of well, every, you know, like all my friends are doing it. There's a lot of that. There's the I just wasn't aware that there was any alternative to this. You know, all the like you know, at minimum, you've got teachers that are not violent criminals, and you say, well, could I be you? And it's also very normal, even in inner city families, to have a few relatives that you've met, that you know of, who have a totally middle class lifestyle. You know, you encounter them. It shows this is not totally beyond you by any means. Right. So there's that. And then furthermore, there's a lot of factors that we think of as causing criminality. If you really think about them, they are reason to not be a criminal. Right. Especially once you realize most crime is not lucrative. For example, drunk driving. There's no money in drunk driving. Right now, you'll see that criminal behavior all sort of goes together, but you know, like, but actually, like most violence is not actually about money; it's about honor. Right. Uh, so, you know, like, like you know, the reason why, you know, like, when you look at you know, young young teenage male or teenage males killing each other, it's usually a matter of honor. Someone made fun of someone's manhood. Someone disrespected someone's girlfriend. Someone's shoes were mocked. 
right? Rarely is it, this is a way to, the only way I can think of to make money, right? Which um, And again, normally, even in poor neighborhoods, there's a bunch of obvious lawful ways to make money. They're not popular because people make fun of you. And they oh, you're a McDonald's, ha ha, you're not cool. Right. I, I, I would, uh, I think we just fundamentally disagree on, I hear what you're saying, but I think that, I think that you are understating the extent and the type of pressures on some folks and how difficult it is for, for folks to make these, what, what we'd call, I guess, good choices as opposed to bad choices. But, but I, I understand your oh, argument. Yeah, so you're a reasonable guy, Michael. <laughs> All right. Like, suppose, uh, you know, like, like, you know, right. Let's do the, the Nazi war criminal example. He just says, you know, Everyone would have hated me if I had refused to kill Jews. Everyone. And he documents, shows his family would have disowned him. All the other soldiers would have laughed in his face. No woman would have dated him. Is that, is that enough? Or you say, look, okay, you're right. Uh, but still, you've got to stand up and say no. Yeah, and, and I, I certainly think that is the right choice. I guess I would say generally like, – How much would you reduce a sentence for murder for that excuse, Michael? Well, yeah. That, <laughs> it, the, well, whenever you bring Nazis into things, it's sort of really kind of yeah, yeah, but, argument, but, but, but this is a, I think this is an unusually fair one just because they were under a lot of peer pressure. But we actually have also have good evidence they were almost never killed for refusing to or, or even threatened with, with criminal punishment. There's the book Hitler's Willing Executioners. It really was a genocide where the perpetrators often didn't want to do it. They wouldn't have done it on their own, but they did it for peer pressure. No, I, the I, other people I make fun of me. Yeah, I, I agree with you that once the, the act is committed, that you can't just say, well, that's just, you know, unfortunate. You had a bad childhood, so we will not yeah. punish you for that. Yeah. But well, I also but how, how, how about just reducing the sentence? So it sounds like you would give a milder sentence to someone who committed a murder when they had a disadvantaged background. I, I would I would cons- I would consider it as a as a factor in sentencing. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, so, so so how like you you, you first degree, you first degree murder, but you know, 17 year old guy from a really bad neighborhood. So instead of, instead of life in prison, what do you give him, Michael? Yeah, that, that, I mean, again, that, that would be 20, <laughs> 20 years instead of life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would, yeah, that effectively life. Okay. Sure. Still pretty harsh. Yeah, I, no, absolutely. Yeah. I, I guess, I guess my point is that I, I feel like when people get into these bad situations, it tends not to be a decision. It tends to be a series of bad decisions that build until people find themselves in a situation where they say, holy crap, how did I end up in this life? And I think that's that's a situation that almost all of us can relate to to some extent or another. And so I guess what I'm saying is that I I think your arguments are correct, but they're oversimplified on this. Yeah, that's, a, that's a really good point. Although here's something that's ve- that's very notable. If you're you know, like, it's really if you are in a good neighborhood where you don't know a single person who's ever gone to prison, you can sort of see that you that yeah, that you act that you sudden that you have no other experience. You box yourself in a corner. You're in a bad neighborhood. You know a lot of people who have committed serious crimes and gone to prison, right? So in that case, it's not it doesn't require a lot of imagination to say if I go down this road, I can end up dead or in prison. It's the normal outcome. Whereas if there is yeah so. You know, if you I, have a kid in a, in a nice neighborhood playing around with fireworks, he's never known anyone who's blown his hand off. And then, yeah, like, they might actually blow their hand off. Yeah. So, sure. And yeah. there, 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 of course, then is that argument that uh, young people in general tend to think that they are, you know, 10 feet tall and bulletproof and, and all that, that sort of thing. But no, that that's a fair point. So uh, I want to move on to kind of 
pull this back into diversity, equity, inclusion a little bit. But one thing I think interestingly that you suggested, or at least some people have suggested that why we see all of this diversity uh, uh, inclusion training in organizations, pretty much all large organizations these days, is a concern with legal liability. If we don't do this and there's an incident, well, it's going to be a problem. I, I don't think from, from reading your essays, you entirely believe in this. And it's based on uh, what I guess I'll call your anti-pickpocketing training essay, which is really kind of a neat way to put it. So maybe you could explain what pickpocketing could possibly have to do with diversity training. Yeah. So this is just a little thought experiment. Imagine that you're called in for anti-pickpocketing training and they say, look, there's a pickpocketing crisis in, uh, in this country. Professors are pickpocketing their students left and right. You might pickpocket your students accidentally without even intending to. Let's go and spend an hour explaining what pickpocketing really is and how to avoid it. Right. And this is one where you're like, what are you talking about? This is so weird. Like, what evidence is there that there's a crisis and how could I do it accidentally unless you have, are using the word pickpocketing in a totally abnormal way? And I think this is what, you know, my experience with a lot of the diversity, equity, inclusion training that I've gotten is they go and tell us that there's a crisis of something where I say, is there a crisis? What evidence is there a crisis other than some people complain, right? Which, and especially when people are encouraged to complain, of course they're going to complain. And what exa- how severe are the complaints really? And who's assessing the severity of the complaints? And then the next step is, could I really not already know this? Right? So in the case of sexual harassment of students, like you, like you think I don't already know not to go and ask my students out on dates? Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, if, like, so it's more of one where, like, look, this is all, like, you know, there, there, are, there, are really, there, you know, there are the people that would never do this, and they already know that, it's, that they're not allowed to do it. And there's the people that are doing it. It's not because they don't know. It's because they don't care about the rules. You might say maybe there's a few people who, like, oh, I, I thought this was okay, but I didn't realize. But, again, normally the training's so vague that wouldn't really help those people. Yeah, so I think of this as sort of an Orwellian exercise. Now, you might say it's an Orwellian exercise designed to avoid legal liability. I think that is a factor. But in the places like universities where they're especially fanatical about it, I think it's more of the people that are into this have hijacked the system and just they, they are so fanatical, they just want to do this for its own sake. So I think, you know, I think both things are going on. But the people that decide what kind of training needs to happen are usually true believers in this stuff. And so I think they just overrate even how much how valuable it is relative to legal liability. Right. And, you know, there is there are, you know, at least a small number of experiments here finding that this training actually increases resentment, in which case it's probably not a very good idea. Maybe you're causing the lawsuit that you're thinking you're going to defend yourself against. So at least be, care- be careful with it. I think a lot of people who've gone through the training have found it to be fairly ineffective for, for a number of reasons. But I would and, also. And, humi- and, and, and humiliating. Let's not forget humiliating, Michael. OK. Uh, but but <laughs> I, I mean, think. That's sort of what I was saying. Like if someone says, don't pickpocket your students, Brian. I'm like. Right. Sure. Why would you think I would? That's yeah. kind of insulting. And like for me to have to listen to you for an hour is pretty degrading. But I think you could make the case that there are some issues in which societal norms have or are changing. Like, for instance, when I was a when I was an undergraduate a million years ago, it wasn't you didn't get to no one even thought about choosing their own pronouns. Right. And things like that. But but now you can make a case that, well, that has become more of a societally accepted norm and therefore part of correct behavior for a professor or for a supervisor is ensuring that you are using a person's 
chosen pronouns. And it, wouldn't that be an example of where maybe training or some sort of informational campaign would be appropriate? Right. Well, I think it's the case where there's a vast universe of ways that people might be unkind to others. And the point of training is to pick out a tiny handful and say, these are super important and we will very harshly punish any violation while paying no attention to everything else. I think this really is a case where there are some woke fanatics who have captured a system and they have a, a small list of issues that they really care about that are not cared about much by others and moreover are not objectively very important. And then they try to go and enforce their dogma on the rest of society. That's where I see this. So there's like general training of try to be polite to other people and then say there's a thousand ways you might be impolite and, here's a, and here are the statistically most common ones. Um, you know, and, and again, there, when you put it that way, it's like, well, yeah, probably the most statistically common ways to be impolite to each other are to use a harsh tone of voice. Right. Let's focus on that. Okay. Yeah. Right? I but instead, like, I don't, I've never heard of any training that anyone's ever had about use a pleasant tone of voice with other people. Instead, but, but there is a mass amount of energy spent on pronouns, which usually, in fact, well over 99% of people will, uh, prefer, to have, prefer to use the pronoun that you would think just to look at them. And so as to why the whole world should revolve around a very rare kind of mistreatment or a, a rare kind of a very rare kind of inadvertent rudeness and really just does not make much sense to me. So, so in other so, words, if, if, we're, if there if was we're, an individual said, I want to be called with a certain pronoun, then all right, fine, I'm happy to do it. But that that should be something that everybody talks about, regardless of whether that, such a person is even present. Seems crazy to me. Gotcha. So essentially the argument, your argument is that if we're going to uh, focus or require training on ways that people are less than wonderful to each other, we should determine which of those things are the most common and where we can achieve the most uh, societal good as opposed to having the yeah, agenda and, being and driven. Shouldn't put, it shouldn't put a, nar a narrow group of fanatics in charge to make their hobby horses the, 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 the voice of the world. Got it. Okay. Which, again, I, I, do strong, I do strongly object to. I mean, like, even when I agree the civics still, like, why is it that you people are the self-appointed guardians of righteousness? Like, you're, like, I haven't seen that you're especially wonderful or insightful people. Like, like, have you, like, do you have some special moral theory? If so, share it as to why it is that what you're saying is so much better than what an old person would think. And I just don't see that. And at one point, you write that discrimination creates profit opportunities, or, or at least you'd expect that it would. Uh, but it seems to me that aside from a few notable exceptions, uh, uh, Fox News, maybe some other kind of right wing things, but there, there don't seem to be that many large successful businesses that really have made a lot of money catering to what you might call the anti-woke segment of the market. And I guess two things I'm wondering, do you agree with that? And if so, why do you think that what I'll call the anti-woke crowd is being underserved by the market? Yes, yeah, so especially in terms of employment is the really obvious one. Most workers are not woke and yet almost everyone now endures a lot of woke brainwashing on the job. It is weird because the woke brainwashing goes well beyond the letter of the law or even the spirit of the law. So why are there some firms that try that don't try to go and attract employees by saying, hey, we're going to treat you better here. We're, this is going to be an apolitical firm or even it's going to be a right wing firm. And, yeah, you, you see very little of that in the real world. Uh, this is one where my starting point is there's a good economic reason for it. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily true, but that's at least where I would begin. And then there's really two different kinds of stories you can tell. So one of them is 
market forces and the other one is regulation. So in the case of market forces, you might say, hmm, well, maybe the issue here is that even though woke workers are a minority, they have especially intense preferences. So it makes sense for employers to go and give them what they want at the risk of mildly antagonizing a larger number of people. Right. And I think there's probably a lot to that. There is good evidence that left wing people just care more about politics than right wing people. So right wing person is more likely to say whatever. And left wing person is more likely to say it's got to be this way. All right. So that is that is a totally normal market reason for this. And similarly, of course, for consumers, if woke people are more likely to do a boycott than non woke people, then it makes sense to cater to woke preferences, even if they're a minority of your customers. Because if you fail to cater them, you lose them as customers, but you don't lose them as customers the other way. So I think that is a good part of the story. But I think another important part of the story is that employers are afraid that if they are notably less woke than the competition, that this will come out in a lawsuit eventually. So if it is the industry norm to have diversity, equity, inclusion training, your firm doesn't have it. This is likely to be brought up in a trial. And then that that, 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 uh, will look bad for you. So it is. They also regulation, and again, it doesn't mean that the regulation does not have to actually say that you have to do it for you to be worried about failing to do as much as other, as your competitors, uh, which I think does lead to a gradual ratchet effect uh, where if every, if nobody wants to do less than, 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 than the average, then there's a general tendency for that average to keep going up. You know, now a last story, which I think also there's probably something, this is neither market forces nor regulation. This is that the people that are in charge of the political side of the firm tend to be true believers. And they, to some extent, have been able to hijack the system. Right now, why would this be possible? Well, one reason is that the classic method of disciplining management, the hostile takeover, is almost impossible to do now. So we saw Elon did it for Twitter, but that was not a hostile takeover. That was a friendly takeover. If Twitter had simply, the Twitter board had said, we refuse your, what, 47 million, 47 billion, then Elon could not have taken over the company. That would then would be an, an extremely arduous process to have done it so through regular legal channels. But back in the good old days, all you had to do to take over a company and fire the managers was get 51% of the stock. So I think that is something else is going on. So I think, for example, Disney, I think that the board of Disney, they are actually hurting shareholders with their behavior. Well, like they finally did replace the CEO. Uh, but it's, I, I still looking at it, I could be wrong, but it looks to me like this is not market driven. It's not even regulatory driven. It is some fanatics got to the top and are basically hurting the company in order to pursue their agenda. And the reason why they haven't gotten fired is they're the management <laughs> and, and the hostile takeover system has been diffused or, or defanged. Uh, since since the 80s. You've, you've used the word fanatics a number of times, and I guess I, I'm trying to. Obviously, it's a pejorative, but what do you when you call, when you characterize them as fanatics? I'm trying to get a sense of what you mean, because to me, it, they're not so much fanatics. I would just say that they're they're people who are far more socially progressive, perhaps or more socially progressive than the mainstream. But I guess fanaticism suggests a I don't know a, a level of lack of interest in in argument or reason or anything like that, but. That sounds like that's what you're saying. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I say that there are, you you can rate people by many dimensions, but I'd say you can rate someone's, you you can score someone's position and their fanaticism and they're two different things. Like someone could be a 
very extreme Mormon, but still calmly willing to go and talk to people that disagree with them without demonizing them and willing and going and responding to arguments on their own terms. On the other hand, someone could be a totally moderate person who refuses to consider any argument that conflicts with their moderation. Right. There are actually people like that. <laughs> moderate <laughs> fanatics. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. A moderate fanatic. Yeah. Someone says, look, you know, the middle answer is definitely true. Anyone who says otherwise is a fool. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, in the case of wokeness, uh, we can, logically it is possible for a person to have very woke beliefs, but to be a totally friendly, calm, open-minded person who enjoys having a free exchange of ideas. In practice, however, such people barely exist in my experience. I am in one of the epicenters of wokeness, which is a university, so I can just meet these people and see, wow, these people, it's not merely have a view, but they don't do, you know, they are so convinced that they are right. All they can really do is repeat their position if you argue with them or use thinly veiled threats or often open threats. Uh, you know, there is a, a strong tendency that I've seen firsthand, not even to argue, but just to take out threats as the first thing to say, all right, I'm filing a harassment charge against you. I'm going to try to get you fired because I disagree with you. Um, you know, this doesn't mean that there aren't fanatics of many different varieties. And yes, there are fanatics that agree with me. Absolutely. I, I, I don't consider myself a fanatic. I, I really strive to be a reasonable person. I can have extreme views while still having a friendly discussion with someone still listening, still be, being willing to say, all right, I understand where you're coming from. Here's how I, how I would explain your argument if I were you. Here's how I might improve the argument. I just see so little of this uh, out of the, uh, uh, you know, out of the, uh, not you know, of course, very few people self-identify as woke, but out of people that would self-identify as being proponents of social justice, I see that they have two things. One is a position, but the other one is a, a terrible epistemic attitude, one that prevents them from discovering errors, one where they just do want to demonize their opponents. Not absolutely every single case. These are generalizations, but I will say that 95% of the people that I would consider that that would be generally socially considered as woke, I would also say are fanatical. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. so. Well, you know, you mentioned that the universities are epicenters of this, this sort of ideology. And I, I would, I would absolutely agree with that, but it's yeah. weird to have me. anything to do with your retire with your early retirement, Michael, <laughs> or unrelated? Well, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> a lot of factors, but. Get, are you going to get, are you going to get out while the getting's good? Well, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but one thing I guess I wanted to ask you about this is it's one thing to, to say there are a lot of people who are woke, who are very strongly progressive in, in universities. There's no question about that. Anyone who doesn't argue that way, I think is, is blind. But it's another thing, what I hear from a lot of folks on the right saying, oh my God, there are these, these radical social justice warriors, professors who are indoctrinating their students with these horrifically bad ideas and they're doing grooming and this other stuff. And, and, and honestly, based on what I, I think what research tells us about opinion change is that it's pretty difficult to change opinions on things once they're formed. And not only that, but students, there's this, I guess, idea that students are hanging on our every word and desperate to be. I mean, so I guess this is where this kind of breaks down to me. I I, I wanted to get your take on it. I mean, do you think that that the right overplays this idea that somehow we are exerting this Fengali-like influence on our students? Right. So I definitely agree that the right overstates it even now. In my book, The Case Against Education, I had a a section called The Paper Tiger Political Correctness, where I very strongly argued 
they were grossly overrating it. Since I wrote that, I have ch- I've changed my mind, and I think that while we still don't have really good empirical evidence on this, the main issue is this. Uh, you can go and measure that, you know, the, what's the effect on a student's political views of how taking a really left-wing political science class, and you measure it before, measure it after, and see no measurable change. Now, one conclusion is it doesn't matter what your professors say, and you can't persuade students. That's one conclusion. Another conclusion is maybe you just need to turn up the dosage to a much higher level and then get the predicted result. Uh, since I wrote the case of education, I have been seeing two things. One is the dosage of left-wing indoctrination students has gone up a lot, maybe by a factor of two or three in just a, maybe, say, in less than 10 years. And the other one is I am seeing not only that it seems that students really are becoming more left-wing, but here's what, to my mind, is the smoking gun. There's a bunch of weird kinds of academic jargon that used to stay in universities that have actually broken into popular culture. Right. And that's one where it's harder to say professors don't matter. It's like it's their own freaking jargon that's now being used. You know, things like you know, toxic masculinity right, or intersectionality. These are things where 10 years ago I'd heard of them, but it's like, all right, well, that's the kind of stuff that will never make it in mainstream culture because it's just a bunch of egghead professors using unappealing jargon to go and and then to go and see it break into mainstream culture. I'll actually say. I am I'm aghast that this stuff made it. Intersectionality, like what an incredibly abstruse, boring, <laughs> verbose word. <laughs> if a word, if one word can be verbose, to become something that normal people talk about. And yet it's happened. So I'm kind of stunned by this. There's this old piece by Noam Chomsky, maybe my favorite Chomsky piece ever, where he said, all this postmodernist talk that my, that, that my fellow leftists are using in universities. It's terrible. It prevents common sense left-wing ideas from being spread to the general population. Let's abandon all of this stupid, pretentious jargon and speak in ordinary, plain talk so that good left-wing ideas can be spread to the general population. You guys are terrible for the left-wing cause. This is what Chomsky said. And I read it. I'm like, hmm, that's a really insightful thing, Noam. And I hope and I don't think they're going to listen, and that's good. Right. And then what I see in the last 10 years is, oh, my God, no one was wrong. These people pulled it off. <laughs> they threaded the needle. They got they managed to go and get null people start using this incomprehensible postmodernist jargon. Well, I, I, I guess one of the advantages of using jargon like that is that, that no one really understands is you can basically uh, inject your own meaning into it. Like, for instance, feminism. Right. You can make it whatever you want it to be if we if there's no clear definition. Well, I say feminism is a word that has long been in common use. So sure. It's less subject to yeah, hijacking. Okay. Patriarchy is a word that's that, that's more like that. It's one where you say it with ominous tones. It sounds terrible and evil. And then you basically, it means the people push it can equivocate between Saudi Arabia and today as if they're practically the same thing. Right. It's all patriarchy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's all patriarchy. And, you know, anything can be patriarchy. I mean, again, it really is like calling your newspaper Pravda, meaning truth. And then, what? oh, you're against truth? Oh, well, then. So so we, in the end, it seems to me, I, I would characterize you as being anti-injustice, but pro-evidence. I mean, I guess it's... Yeah, 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 yes. I mean, that's why I call the subtitle essays on genuine justice, that's genuine as opposed to social justice. Yeah, I think I have several pieces in there saying, look, it should be called the social injustice movement. 
it is an elaborate rationalization of mistreating other people. Because it, it seems to me that that's the problem. The problem you and some others, a number of others have, have argued is that you can just because you are you don't agree with with claims that you feel that the evidence clearly shows to be untrue does not mean that you are anti-justice, essentially. Yeah, I mean, and of course, you know, even more strongly, I mean, you know, someone can go and you know, say some things that seem totally wrong and to you and to like, like, you know, immediately say, well, that's obviously totally wrong. You're terrible. You know, that's, that's really just jumping the gun. You know, it really helps a lot to remember one, one's own fallibility to try to have modesty. And I say this not because I'm good at these things. I say this because I'm bad at them. I've always been arrogant. It's like it's the personality trait of mine that I remember having from the earliest age. So, and I, I, I do make an effort to guard against it. I really do make an effort to listen just to step back and say, well, what is the most that one could reasonably concede to this position uh, before criticizing it? I tried to do that in this interview. I, I know that I just have a tone of incredible self-confidence. I, <laughs> I'll, like, that's just me. I, like, right, I, yeah. I, 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 like, I, this, this is, however, why I bet people, and I bet them at odds. When you, when you ask for odds, you are implicitly saying, like, I'm not 100% on this. Um, 80, 90. So not hundred. It it it's essentially a call for uh, intellectual humility, I guess, and and I wonder that there seems to be very little of that, and the least humble voices uh, and the least self aware uh, about that flaw voices tend to be the most magnified, and I guess it's it's the sort of thing that can make you feel fairly pessimistic. I I, I would think how how pessimistic or optimistic are you uh, about this? Hmm. Yeah, for universities, I would say that I'm at, gee, yeah, like the 95th percentile of pessimism. I think so. You know, essentially, what you have to look at is the age pattern of the woke fanaticism. We'll see. Is there's most professors who are over 50 are not woke fanatics. You know, they may you know, if they're woke, they're not fanatics about it. You can still have a good conversation uh, with it about them if they know that no one is listening. But when you look at professors that are under 40, there it looks to me like we've got, we're up to a majority of woke fanatics in at least humanities and social sciences, maybe more broadly. And this spirals in on itself so that once you see that if you disagree, you're not merely going to be an intellectual minority, which is never pleasant, but you're going to be a hated intellectual minority. That is frightening. Right? So uh, I would say for universities, I am very pessimistic. I think that they are not going to change. They're going to, taxpayers are not going to defund them. So the one thing that you really could do try. to go change this. Be, yeah, so again, I, like you do see this happening a little bit in Florida recently, where the new College of Florida, DeSantis, is appointing a majority of not just non but anti woke people to the board, uh, who in principle could go and vote to totally change this one university. Right. Uh, uh, however, this is very unusual, very rare. I don't see this as the beginning of a big trend. I, I mean, like often, a lot of it really, you know, strangely comes down to the average voter, no matter how conservative they are, they, they actually love their state universities because of the sports. Right? So you know, like, almost no one in Texas wants to say, I'm going to bring the University of Texas to its knees uh, because it's like, well, that's where, that's where, you know, that's where the, long, the school of the Longhorns, what are you talking about? Like, no, we love the University of Texas. And you say, well, look, what about the brain, left-wing brainwashing? All right, well, that's, sure, 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 but what about the latest game? <laughs> so. That's the problem: is that politicians do not want to take universities on, uh, you know, take the universities on directly because 
They have so much residual respect, not so much for their scholarship, but because of just like, you know, their kids went there, they got these sports teams, they're beloved in some sense, so they have to just be a lot worse to lose that halo. Uh, in terms of the broader society, yeah, I mean, it does seem like this is taking over most workplaces. So most workplaces are going to be ones where the political indoctrination is standard. I was just uh, hanging out with a friend who says that at his firm, which is a totally apolitical firm, they just receive multiple emails per day with left-wing brainwashing. The good news, he said, is that his, you know, the workers don't ever talk about it. It's There's sort of a few employees who job, whose job it is to, keep, to constantly do email sermons, and everyone else deletes the emails and, can, and talks about their kids' sports at lunch. But that's by itself fairly dystopian. And then just projecting it forward, like, you know, once you get to a world where people, or where most people at least are passive true believers, then yeah, like, like what becomes of, you know, of uh, you know, not just freedom of speech, but quality of life. Uh, I think that's pretty, uh, yeah, pretty grim. Uh, yeah, like my, my main thing that I always come back to to make myself feel better is I have the slogan, ADHD will save us. Yeah, most people just find <laughs> politics so boring <laughs> right. that uh, it's just, you know, it's hard for any society to, for the fanatics to stay totally on top for long. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they can't be poisoning the well forever. It's just, we're going to, you know, basically it means everyone's going to have to go and drink water that tastes bad forever. Uh, but it doesn't, we won't die, but it's like, man, was, was there ever a time where the water didn't taste bad? So yeah, there was such a time. So, so in the end, we're banking on apathy and distraction to, to save us from what, from yeah. what you see. Is that yeah. a- like, like, honestly, you can totally see this in the last three years. So right after the George Floyd killing, this is when there was a woke spike to truly Orwellian levels where sort of the news was just like, you know, 24, like, like, like you know, news channels, like all day, every day like the horrors of white supremacy in this country. And the, you know, and then that was maintained for about a month and then very slowly started decaying. And now it's only 20% of the time. Is it what a horrible white supremacist society, we, white supremacist society we have, uh, which is again, bizarre in a society where you would have to look long and long and hard to find a single self-identified white supremacist. But that's part of the fanaticism is saying that there's a ubiquitous enemy that has no obvious actual followers. Well, it, it seems to me, Brian, that despite everything, you, you maintain uh, a certain, at least, uh, it seems to me, ostensible optimism, which may in, in and of itself be irrational, but I salute you for it anyway. So, yeah, Well, I try to keep a sense of humor. I mean, the main thing for me, honestly, is... No, I've got tenure. Things would have to get way worse for me to lose my job. Yeah, like, sure. I mean, almost. So basically, almost all the cases I've heard of professors allegedly losing their jobs for political reasons. When you look more closely, almost 100 percent of them have been cases where a professor was paid several years' salary to quit rather than be fired, right? Because they were because they felt disliked and hail or hated. Um, you know, like, I'm never going to take that deal. Right. And some people be happy <laughs> you, for that you, deal. You, How do I get from, that? From, one? A yeah. cold, from a cold, dead hand, <laughs> yeah. will you pry this, this incredible job that I have for me? Um, you know, so things would have to get way worse before it actually turned out to be the other way where they would actually fire me for saying the wrong thing. I think that's, uh, that's uh, you know, quite unlikely. But what it really matters for is new hiring, young people that would like to go and be in the world of ideas. For them, you know, they know that at best, best case scenario, there's going to be a decade where they will have to not only not talk about these issues, but actually feign agreement or else they are screwed. 
All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> that, 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 that is really what makes me more pessimistic about sure. academia than anything. It's just saying like, you know, I like young, you know, young people that I think would have made great professors in the past. I now have to say, well, you're like, there's going to be a lot of suffering for you that you know, it was, ne- it was never great, but it's, it's, it's bad now for someone that is, you know, you know, just wants to go and do real scholarship and not be a hack. Well, on that uh, less than entirely optimistic note, we'll we'll close. But as always, it's been a lot of fun talking with you. The conversation went in, uh, as always, again, a number of directions I wouldn't have expected, but enjoyed thoroughly. So, Brian Kaplan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Always an incredible, incredible pleasure, Michael. I hope you keep doing the podcast uh, after you retire. And let me just tell readers that they can get the book very easily from Amazon. It's 12 bucks for the paperback, $9.99 for the ebook. I have not raised prices despite enormous inflation. And if you like this, then you can go and listen to my other podcasts and my other books and buy them all. And all of that will be in the show notes, so you can look it up right there. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.